everybody doing tonight? Good. Good. Well, let's uh, open with a word of prayer and then we'll dive in and see where we go. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay. Lord, thank you that you are the Lord most high. You are God most high. You are high above everything. You are high above your creation and above all things. But you have called us to serve as your priests, to do your work, to advance your kingdom, to spread it through the world. So I pray that this study will continue to help us to understand what it means to be a priest, how the idea of priesthood permeates your word from beginning to end. I pray that this will be edifying and ultimately encouraging and that we will find answers and things that point to your son, Jesus Christ, everywhere. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Okay, so we are back for night round two of tracing the idea of priesthood through the Bible. And last week we talked about Adam as the prototypical priest, how God made him and Eve and commissioned them to be priests, to be his image bearers, and to fill the world with his image, really, as image bearers, to be fruitful and multiply, and to bring his image into the world, a priestly action, and how much of what Adam did was priestly in nature. Uh, also, I think if, if anyone wants notes from last week, I think there's still some out in the lobby. Matt can go grab those for you if you want. So, um, And then from there, we moved on to Abraham, who we don't often think of as a priest. Not that we think of Adam as a priest, but he is functioning as one, and, and so too is Abraham. And it's important to see the actions that these people in the Old Testament do that we take for granted and understand that they are, by nature, priestly actions. So when we see Abraham making sacrifices and, thing, and building an altar and things like that, those are not the actions of just any old person, but they are, by nature, priestly actions. So even though he is not called a priest, he is still functioning as one. And I want to begin by talking about that just a little bit more about Abraham, because that's going to pave the way into the next phase of the biblical revelation of priesthood as we get to Melchizedek. So what I want to look at as far as Abraham goes very briefly is in Genesis chapter 12, which is when God first promises, makes promises 
to Abraham. And Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, a lot of this is looking in a way as a restoration, or at least a partial restoration, of what Adam and Eve were to be doing. So the priesthood that God had established in Adam and Eve, he is reestablishing in Abraham. Now, so I highlighted a few sections in there. I mean, I really, I could have just highlighted the whole thing. Um, but I mean, I, I, I bolded it. Um, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. So remember back in Hebrews where I started last week, Hebrews 5, 1 through 4, uh, it's talking about not the only qualifications for a priest, but the you know kind of characteristics of a high priest. And what's the very first characteristic that was mentioned? I'm a really slow page turner. Uh, it says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Do they appoint themselves? No. Who is appointing them? God. And he reiterates that in verse 4. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. But was not Abraham also called by God? And on what merit was he called? None. I mean, he was, he was raised in an idolatrous house. I mean, it says elsewhere, I think it's in Hebrews, where it says that the, the house of Terah was a house where idols were worshipped. So Abraham was from an idolatrous home and God called him. So here in this blessing, in this call that God is making, he says, go from your country and your kindred and from your father's house. So he is called out by God just as the high priest is. And then notice there it's, it's bless and bless and bless and bless and bless. A blessing is an essentially priestly activity. It is something that the pre, you know, during the time of the tabernacle and the temple, that was something that the priests were to do. That was a function that they held in society. They were to bless the people. And here, God is promising that he will bless Abraham and that through Abraham, all the world will be blessed. So just the priestly nature of Abraham's call is being established right away in the account of Abraham. So, I mean, what happens in, in chapter 11? Well, it's the bridge of genealogies that connects Noah to Abraham. And then chapter 12 begins, and it begins right away with this call to Abraham, which is, which is priestly in nature. 
And then Lot and Abraham separate. And then you get to, and that's in chapter 13. And then you get to chapter 14. And here's where things start to get interesting. And it's really, this was a challenging class for me to prepare for in a lot of ways because Melchizedek is a mysterious figure. And we want to know more about him. I mean, I think it's our natural curiosity to want to know more. So let me set the stage for the the coming of Melchizedek, and then we can talk about him for a while. Um, So what happens at the beginning of 14? Well, where does it say Lot went and settled in chapter 13? Yes, he goes and settles in Sodom. And we will read, you know, later on we'll see him back in Sodom when God is going to destroy it. So from the time that Lot and Abraham separate, Lot kind of, well, throws in his lot with uh, an unsavory crowd. And then you have four kings rise up for war. And they are going to be countered by five kings rising up to go to war against each other. So four kings against five kings. It's like a, a small world war going on. And the five kings include the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah. So in theory, these are familiar, uh, maybe not familiar people, but you know we're familiar with some of these places. And they go to war, and what happens? Well, the five kings get beat, and Lot is captured. So is Abraham going to let that lie? No. What does he do? Yeah, he musters his small army of household troops, 318, and what the significance of the number is, I don't know. But I think there is some significance in the number because this is mirrored in some ways in the account of Gideon, who through the winnowing process, God leaves him with about 300 soldiers to go and win a miraculous victory. So I do think there is some parallel there. And I did discuss this in the kind of the pre- prelude class where I talked about the kingship and prophet roles that Adam and Abraham had. So part of this is, is Abraham's functioning as a king. So just as an aside, why does that matter? That Abraham and Adam, or Adam and Abraham, not only were they priests, but they were prophets and kings. Why does that matter? Yeah, it's, it's pointing the way towards Christ. The, you know, there is a familiar pattern that is developing of God's people, the conduit of his blessing, are prophet, priest, and king. So who, who is the greatest prophet, priest, and king? Jesus. Before Jesus, who was the greatest prophet, priest, and king? David, maybe. David, or... Well, as we'll see tonight, maybe Melchizedek in some ways. So, uh, <clears throat> so what Adam was supposed to be 
and failed. We're going to see that now start to crop up through Scripture as we build towards Christ. And each building, it's going to escalate from the previous foreshadowing of something. It's going to escalate to the next one and the next one and the next one. And eventually will escalate until we get the incarnation, the God-man, who will be the greatest of these things. All of these things are foreshadows of the actual thing. So, um, I totally lost my train of thought, though. Yeah. Yes, so this is a part of Abraham's, in, in part, his kingly activity, but now we're going to be looking at his priestly activity. So he gets his 318 guys, and he goes, and what does he do? He wins against four kings. The four kings that just beat five kings, Abraham with 318 guys is going to defeat them. Is that a miraculous victory? Yes. Remember that because that's going to be important later on tonight. So that leads, <clears throat> leads us then to... Um, let me turn the page. That leads us then to... Uh, Let's just look at verse 16. After the defeat, he pursued the kings and defeated them. And then in 16 it says, Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So Abraham got not just one, but he got a heap of booty, of spoils. And so now, and then it says, after his return from the defeat of Chertolaomer, who, who was one of the kings, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley, the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And then it stops, and you get to verse 18, and then all of a sudden, it totally shifts gears. And it says, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's it. That's the end of Melchizedek. And it goes back and it says, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. So you have this very short snippet of what's going on with Abraham as he encounters Melchizedek. Now, I'm going to pause there. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But Melchizedek explicitly is only mentioned in three places in the Bible. So there's only three books that talk about Melchizedek. You just looked at the first one. There's Psalm 110, and then there's the book of Hebrews, mostly in chapters 5 and really mostly in chapter 7. So we're going to look at Hebrews tonight, but I want to say chapter or Psalm 110 we're not going to look at tonight because I think we can establish what we need to establish about Melchizedek without that. 
And Psalm 110 is going to be more important, and we'll spend a lot of time on it when we talk about Melchizedek and David. So those are the only three places in the Bible, though, that reference Melchizedek explicitly. And here it is. This is the only place where he's actually featured as a participant in the events. But it's kind of mysterious. You know, the king of Sodom comes down to meet Abraham, and then all of a sudden, Melchizedek shows up. So let's talk about what that means. Uh, You are on section two, part A, and we're down at the end of the page. One, two, three, four, five, six. On the first page. So what does the name Melchizedek actually mean? I didn't put this in the notes, though I should have. Well, it literally means king of righteousness. And that's going to be important, as we will see in a little bit. But here's some, just some observations about Melchizedek that we can glean from this. He appears out of nowhere. He is the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, and it's identified as such elsewhere. So, this is the first time we see Jerusalem mentioned in the Bible. And I don't know what the significance of this is, but I'm, I know God likes numbers that fit. But you have four kings against five kings. Who's the tenth king that we encounter? It's Melchizedek. I don't know the significance of that, but it's worth noting. But he is the king of Salem, and he's also identified as a priest of El Elyon, God Most High. So he is, he is the first person that we see in the Bible actually identified as a priest. Now we can see other people, specifically Adam, To a lesser degree, Cain, Abel, Noah, and Shem functioning as priests. And then on a more significant level, we see Abraham functioning as a priest. But Melchizedek is the first person in the Bible specifically identified as a priest. But he is the priest of El Elyon, God Most High. To Abraham, he provides a meal of bread and wine. Does that seem significant? Yes, it does. But we're not going to talk about that now. We need to fill in more gaps later on and and circle back to that. So just, you know, put a little bookmark in that. But it's worth noting. And then he blesses Abraham. And then Abraham gives him a tithe. He gives him 10% of the spoils that he has won in this battle. And it's interesting that the king of Sodom brackets this account. He is there at the beginning before Melchizedek shows up. He's there in verse 16. And then without even any kind of transition, Melchizedek's gone and then the king of Sodom picks up the action again. and But it's important because this is really where the first time 
where we see Abraham not just following God, but identifying with him. So in chapter 12, in chapter 13, Abraham is kind of reluctantly following God's call and doing so very imperfectly. But then he has this war and he meets Melchizedek. And how does Melchizedek identify God as El Elyon, God Most High? But then look at verse 22. Well, let's start with 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Now, right there, you look back to verse 19. And what does Melchizedek say? He, he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of of heaven and earth. So here for the first time, and really publicly, you see Abraham announcing his allegiance to Yahweh. And that's significant. I think the meeting with Melchizedek is important because it, I mean, it's important for a lot of reasons, and we'll, we'll get to those. But it's important here because this is a real turning point for Abraham. So Abraham has been blindly, I mean in a good way, following God, but now he's meeting someone else that worships Yahweh, that is a priest of Yahweh. And Abraham is then identifying with him. And what he is denying to the king of Sodom, he is giving to Melchizedek. So he, the king of Sodom says, give me the people, you take all the spoils. Abraham has already freely given the spoils to Melchizedek. But Abraham's response to the king of Sodom is, no, you take everything except what I need to pay my guys, because I don't want anyone but God to get the credit for this. So one gift to the king, to the king priest, is made out of supplication, the other is made as a sign that only El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth, will get the credit for the victory. So it's, it's an important milestone for Abraham, but it's a priestly milestone because now he has met a priest that is connecting him. What does a priest do? They connect people to God. They are the the mediator between God and people. And through Melchizedek, Abraham has a mediator that is connecting him to God. And so his righteous response to Melchizedek and his righteous response kind of to the contrary to the king of Sodom is an important Stepping stone, because what happens next? What happens in chapter 15? Yeah. So now, after this has happened, and after Abraham has publicly declared his allegiance to Yahweh, 
to El Elyon, God meets him and makes a covenant with him. And the covenant that he makes, in a lot of ways, mirrors the blessing, the prayer that Melchizedek says over Abraham. So he says, you know, it, let me, <clears throat> uh, blah, 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 where is it? Let me read, uh, I lost my place here. So, uh, back in chapter 14, he says, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So now you go to chapter 15. And as, just as quickly as Melchizedek disappears, so too now do, do the nature of events change. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, prophet. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. Um, and it goes on, and they talk about how Abram needs a son to, to continue his line, to fulfill the promise that God has given him. But the key line there for now is verse 6, and it says, And he believed Yahweh, and he counted it to him, as righteousness. So after meeting the king of righteousness, and in consequence, Abraham's public declaration of his allegiance to Yahweh, that faith is now being credited to him as righteousness. When you see terms reappearing like this on a, in close proximity, don't assume that's by accident. Take it for what it is. I mean, it's there for a reason. But then you go down, and this is where uh, Abraham sacrifices animals, priestly, cuts them in half because he's going to cut a covenant. And then Abraham falls asleep. And how does God appear? Yeah, as a smoking fire pot. And that's going to be significant later on. And he passes that fire pot while Abram's asleep. The fire pot passes between the animals, making the covenant with Abraham. But does Abraham make the covenant with God? No, because the nature of the covenant is the animals are split in half. And those making the, the covenant pass between them. And that is an act to say... May I be treated as these animals have been if I break this covenant. So God puts Abraham to sleep because he knows Abraham and all people who follow him, us included, will not be able to keep the promise. And in order to save us, we are not being held to that the way God is holding himself to that because he is not going to break that promise. But remember the smoking fire pot, because we'll come back to that in a little bit too. There's a lot going on here. And then he makes promises to Abraham, and he promises him blessing, and specifically, to your offspring I give this land, from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of, and he lists all the people. Now who 
has the right to give that land. Why? What? Yeah, it is. But what did we just see him called? Possessor of heaven and earth. It's his land to dispense. So the priestly action of Melchizedek has connected Abraham to God. And really God's, and God's blessing is, is flowing from that. And that prayer of Melchizedek is, is very important. And we're going to see it mirrored again. We'll get, and we'll, we'll get back to that too. Yes, wait. Yeah, I don't want to, probably. I mean, if they shared a meal, they had to be talking during the meal. And I think that Abraham's actions at this point indicate an increased awareness of who God is. So, yes. So, it's a, it's a big watershed. And the fact that, you know... It's not by accident that chapter 15 of Genesis is following after chapter 14 of Genesis. If something seems connected, it's probably because they're connected. So, you know, but when we read this, there's so much going on and it's so mysterious. It's like we often just, we can't see the forest for the trees. But when you get down to the brass tacks and you kind of separate things out a little bit, you can really start to see the parallels of what's going on in the clair- and with clarity about what's going on in these chapters. And, you know, Melchizedek will always remain a mysterious figure, but in some ways he's less mysterious than he really is. And I know right now he still is, but hopefully... By the time we're done with this, because we're going to come back to him. We're not done with him yet, right now. But by the time we're done with this class, we'll have filled in a lot more of the gaps. So tonight, we're going to, we still have some more to talk about him directly. But tonight, I want to point out a few things that are connected to Melchizedek that we don't often see connected to him. So we'll get there. But for now, let's turn to Hebrews. Because Hebrews is one of the main sources that we have on Melchizedek. And in a lot of ways, it's, it's just echoing what we see in Genesis, but it's giving it more context and a few more facts. So, verse, or verse chapter 4 of Hebrews, we see Christ identified by the author of Hebrews as our great high priest. And so that creates a logical problem for Hebrews. How could Christ be the great high priest? Is he a Levite? What tribe is he from? Judah. So the author of Hebrews, 
then is going to set out and demonstrate how and why Christ can function, is functioning as the great high priest. And long story short, and then let's talk about it. He is functioning as the high priest in the order, in the precedent set by Melchizedek. Now let me ask you this, as sort of a teaser for what's going to come. Not next week, but probably the week after that. Do we have pictures in the Bible of anyone else functioning as the high priest of Melchizedek, besides Melchizedek and Christ? Is there anyone else that we can identify in the Bible that we can see functioning as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, besides Melchizedek himself and Christ? Is there anyone else? No? He's a Levite. Yeah. David is. Hezekiah is. Josiah is. All these kings, and we're going to talk, we're going to have a whole class on this. So that's still coming up. But all these kings are functioning in that high priestly capacity. And what was Melchizedek besides a high priest of El Elyon, king of Salem? So what you have is the unity of this king and priest in one person. We saw that in Adam. That was God's original plan was to have the king and the priest combined in one person. But that all went awry. But it's going to be restored in Christ. But, and what's the axiom that I always say? What God has... That's good. What God has done in the past is a model and a promise for what he will do in the future. So when you read the Bible, especially when you read the Old Testament, always have that in your mind. What God has done in the past is a model and a promise for what he will do in the future. What we see in Adam, what we see in Melchizedek, what we will see in Moses, what we will see in David, are all Models and promises for the one who will ultimately come and perfect that role of priest and king and prophet. Does that make sense? Okay. Yikes. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, so chapter 4 in Hebrews is talking about Christ as the high priest. But then, in chapter 5, and then really in chapter 7, the author of Hebrews is going to answer the, the question that he knows is in the minds of his readers. Uh, but whoever wrote this book, because we don't know who the author of Hebrews is, but whoever wrote this book, this is what they're saying, uh, you know, what about the fact that Jesus is not a Levite? How can he be the high priest? And so this is the answer. And the answer is, and he points first to Psalm 110. 
Now, who wrote Psalm 110? David. We're going to go back. We're going to talk about Psalm 110 when we talk about David as a high priest of Melchizedek. So we're going to go back to that. But for now, the author of Hebrews quotes it. He says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, that's verse 5. You know, 5-5. Five, five. So, and in the days of his flesh, during the incarnation, uh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Then turn to, turn to chapter 7. And here you have the great chapter. This, the, the, this is where Melchizedek is mentioned most, more than any other place in the Bible. But all of this is building out of what we read in Genesis. So that little weird, mysterious snippet where Melchizedek appears, meets Abraham, prays with him, shares a meal with him, and then disappears. Everything in chapter 7 is building out of that. But, in the background is these other places where we have glimpses of Melchizedek. So we're going to look at some of those tonight in a minute, and then we'll really talk about it when we talk about David. So, but just, I just want to throw that out there because I really don't, you know, we can't talk about it all at once, but I want to make sure there's connective tissue pulling these things all together. <clears throat> so, excuse me. So, here in chapter 7, many of the facts that are established in Genesis are repeated here. So, he is the king of Salem, he is the priest of God Most High. And Abraham gave him a tithe of the spoils that he won in this war of the nine kings. But we get to see a little more. Um, we see that, as I, I mentioned, part B in the notes, 3B. Through his names, we see it that it is he is. Uh, a foreshadowing of Christ. He is the king of righteousness. He is also the king of peace. Those are definitely terms that we associate with Christ. And Hebrews 7.3 references, I think, is the mysteriousness of his appearance in Genesis. He is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So, I mean, we look at Genesis, and he, Melchizedek just suddenly appears and does what he does, and then he disappears. He has, in effect, no father or mother or genealogy. By what right is he the king of Jerusalem? We don't know. We know nothing. Does he have 
a death in the book. I mean, he just appears and disappears. And he's just kind of like, he could still be out there doing what he's doing. I mean, I don't believe he is, other than he is with God and serving as a priest of God in his presence, just as we all will. But he's not in some special capacity doing so. But the point is, it doesn't matter what his, how he got his position. What matters is the position that he is in. And some have taken this to mean that he's like an angel or some kind of spiritual being or anything like that. But I, I don't think that that's the case. I, I mean, I think that what... No. Well, I mean, some people have said that, but I really, really, really don't think he is for a few reasons. One, Hebrews 7 makes it pretty clear that he's not Jesus, that he is a foreshadowing of Jesus, and he is establishing the precedent that Jesus will perfect. So chapter 7 definitely treats him as a different person. Go ahead, Hoyt. That's, that's where I was going next, was he is not, Abraham treats him as a person, not the same way Abraham will treat the angel of Yahweh, or uh, Joshua will encounter the commanders of the Lord's army, and, and he will fall down and worship, and is allowed to do so. So, I think Abraham's interaction with him is a strong indicator that he is just a man. A very important man, but he's still just just a man. Yeah, no problem. Um, so, that, you know, that's all we really learn about Melchizedek at this point, from you know, then we have Jesus compared to Melchizedek later on in chapter 7. And I want to hold off on that for now because we're going to come back to that at the end of the class when, we're, when we get into the, the New Testament in a greater detail and when we focus on Christ as the high priest. So we're, we're building up to that. So some of, and again, I'm sorry, some of this, we, we hint at it, but we can't address it yet because we've got to get all the other pieces in place first. So, okay. But that's, that's kind of the end of Melchizedek in Scripture. But we have some other things that we can look at that will solidify his position and also connect him to other things. One of them is David, and we'll get to that. But what I want to look at now is, uh, is Jethro. Who's Jethro? This is on the last page, and I, didn't, I frankly didn't have time to finish the notes for this. So, this is, so these are very imperfect notes. But halfway down the back page, I want to talk about Jethro, and then we'll go to the top of the back page. And if we have time, we'll talk about Adonizedek. Correct, he was. But what else was he? So why don't we turn to Exodus, and uh, let's just turn to chapter 18 in Exodus. But what else, what else was, was Jethro? 
Yeah, he's a priest of Midian. 18. So, you know, other than being the father-in-law of Moses, we don't give Jethro a lot of uh, attention. But believe it or not, he is standing in for Melchizedek and functioning in the same role that Melchizedek is functioning in. It's actually really amazing. And Jethro really should get a lot more attention than he does because he gets none, pretty much. You know, I mean, he's in the Ten Commandments for like two minutes. It's like good grief. So, come on, DeMille. Um, I can't think about, for whatever, all my mental images of Moses and the Exodus are all from the Ten Commandments. I mean, I saw it too young in life. I can't unthink that. So, uh, it's just the way it is for me. Okay, so we first meet Jethro in chapters 2 and 3 of Exodus. But it's really just in passing Moses is exiled from Egypt, shows up out near Sinai, meets Jethro, marries one of his daughters. And then Moses goes up on Sinai, and who does he meet up there? He meets God. Okay. So now, let me give you, you can see I kind of broke out some parallels there. Let me give you the parale- some of the parallels that are now going to Exit that we can observe between Abraham and Moses and what we saw in chapter 14 and elsewhere, in chapter 14 and 15, and what we're going to see here in Exodus. And you will see how Jethro really is functioning in a Melchizedekian role. And for what it's worth, is Melchizedek, is Melchizedek a Hebrew? No, he's not. There are no Hebrews. There's just Abraham and Sarah at that point. Okay. Is Jethro a Hebrew? No. He's a Midianite. So he is not a Hebrew. But here in these early stages of the development of God's plan of salvation, I think it's really interesting that these priests see Yahweh and recognize him for who he is with more clarity than the Hebrews do. So Abraham is equivocating through chapters 12 and 13. He's faithful, but he's equivocating. And then he meets Melchizedek, and it is boom, I serve El Elyon. And then God makes a covenant with him. But Melchizedek has clarity as far as who God is. And it's going to be the same thing with Jethro. So here's what happens. So God leads Abraham into the land. We see that in chapter 12 and chapter 13 in Genesis. In Exodus, we see God leading Moses and the Hebrews out of Egypt. Okay? And then Abraham defeats the four kings in chapter 14. And in chapter 17 in Exodus, 
what happens. Moses and the Hebrews defeat the Amalekites. But it's seen as a miraculous victory, just as Abraham's victory is a miraculous victory. That begins in Exodus 17, verse 8, through the end of the chapter is is the, the battle with the Amalekites. And then, after the battle that Abraham fights, who does he meet? Melchizedek. After the, ba- the victory over the Amalekites, who does Moses meet? He meets Jethro. And we'll talk about their encounter here in a moment. But then, who does, where, what happens to Abraham after the encounter with Melchizedek? He makes a covenant with God, or God makes the covenant with him. And how is God manifest in that? With smoke and fire? And so after he meets Jethro, or after Moses meets Jethro, he goes up on Sinai where there is smoke and fire, and what happens? God makes another covenant. And Jethro himself, identified in the text as a priest, functions in the same capacity that Melchizedek does. Their prayers are actually very similar. So let me read that prayer from Melchizedek again, and then I will read the prayer of Jethro. Uh, So he, Melchizedek, and he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So now let's read Jethro's prayer. This is in chapter 18, verse 10. So Jethro meets Moses after the great victory with the, over the Amalekites, which God has given them the victory. It's a, speci- it's a miraculous victory. And Jethro says, Blessed be Yahweh, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people, being the Egyptians. So here you have Jethro offering a prayer with the same features as Melchizedek's prayer. So he has blessed Abraham, and blessed be God Most High who has what? Yes, but I mean, what is Melchizedek says? Who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So Melchizedek is blessing Abram, Abraham. He will be in a minute soon. And then he recognizes that, his, that God has given his enemies into Abram's hand, that the victory is miraculous. And here we see the same thing in Jethro's prayer. Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of Egypt and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. And then he says, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. 
And I think that that's really, so not only is he functioning in that Melchizedekian capacity and offering a prayer similar to that of Melchizedek, but on a side note, on a tangent, when he says, now I know that Yahweh is greater than all the other gods, what do you think that is referring to, referring back to? Yeah, the whole beginning of Exodus with the plagues and everything like that, that's a polemic. That's a war between Yahweh and the false gods. And so what Jethro is saying is, I am observing Yahweh's supremacy in this war that Yahweh himself has just fought. So it's really closing the chapter on the plagues and everything like that. This is concluding that narrative. And it wasn't just the plagues, it was also the encounter at the Red Sea. So, you know, Egypt was the most powerful kingdom in the world, and God has defeated them. And so now Jethro knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that this battle that God has publicly waged has been won, and Yahweh is victorious. But we see him offering this Melchizedekian prayer, and then what do they do? It says, and Jethro, in, chapter, in verse 12, it says, And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, burnt, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, Moses' father-in-law, before God. So just as Melchizedek shares a meal with Abraham... And then Abraham shares, make sure his guys got their share of the spoils. So too now will Jethro have a meal with Moses, the victorious, and the other leaders will also be able to partake in this meal. So you see Jethro functioning as in the pattern of Melchizedek. And... I think that's something we should take note of. I mean, you know, the New Testament doesn't take note of this, but God put this here for a reason. It's giving us insight into what a priest's role is, into what Melchizedek's role is, and ultimately building up to what Christ is doing. But Jethro is actually a really pivotal figure, even more than... uh, than this, if you go on in chapter 18 in Exodus, I mean, this is not everybody's favorite part of Exodus. It's like you read about up to, uh, uh, you know, the Red Sea, and then I have a tendency to skip over this and, you know, jump to, you know, Moses going up on Sinai and getting the Ten Commandments. You know, it's like, what's all this with Jethro? Who cares? Well, we should care. It's not an accident. It's, ab- it's, it's absolutely divinely ordained. Mm-hmm. So the latter half of chapter 18 says, The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. So now what's going to happen? I'm not going to read the whole section, but basically what happens is Jethro comes out, And he sees how Moses is judging the people. 
And he, he, says, he basically says, look, this is how you should do it. You judge him like this. And he starts to dispense good wisdom to Moses on how to judge and rule the people. So what is he doing? What, what else was Melchizedek? He, he, yeah, he's a king. He was a king priest. So here you see Jethro, the priest, also teaching Moses how to rule wisely like a king. So you have that pattern continuing where Adam was a king priest, Melchizedek is a king priest, Jethro is a king priest, ultimately David and his successors will be king priests, and who is the final king priest? Jesus Christ. So he, what does he do though? So let's keep talking about priests and, and Jethro. What does he advise Abraham to do? And this is going to lead into next week, okay? So this is Moses. If I say Abraham at this point, I mean Moses, okay? I'm sorry if I... We're going to talk about this again, this, this part right here, we're going to talk about at the beginning of next week's class, because this is really the transitional moment that we have, okay? And so Jethro is going to tell them, tell Moses, he's going to say, you can't do it all on your own. I'm paraphrasing. You can't do it all on your own. You need to delegate. You're going to delegate. So you're delegating your priestly authority. And what happens in the very next chapter in verse 6? Moses goes up on Sinai and he talks to God. And God says at the end of one statement, he says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So the advice that Jethro is giving Moses is foreshadowing God's intent for the nation, that they be a kingdom of priests. I mean, really, Jethro is a great figure in the Bible. I mean, he doesn't get the attention he deserves, but he really is a pivotal guy. You know, most of the attention he gets is the Ten Commandments treatment. Is There he is, Moses is exiled, then he marries his daughter, and then he goes on Sinai, and that's the end of Jethro. Yeah, absolutely. So, we, we are establishing not just what God's intent for Israel is, but God's intent for Israel really is what? It's a restoration of Eden. Where Adam and Eve, the original priests in the garden, were told to go do what? Be fruitful and multiply. To fill the world with image bearers, with, God, with image bearers of God. To fill the world and make it Eden, in effect, to be priests, of, to fill the world with priests. And now God is bringing that back. He is beginning a partial restoration with a nation of priests. We're going to pick up there 
next week. Because next week we're going to talk about the priesthood of the firstborn and then the Levitical priesthood. So that's the next phase in the development. But Melchizedek is absolutely critically important because he is setting the model, he is setting the precedent, and he is setting the order of priesthood that Jesus Christ himself is going to fill. <laughs> uh, Exodus and Leviticus. <laughs> I mean, it's a lot. I mean, but we're, I'm going to try to pull that all together so that, you know, into a digestible chunk. But there's obviously going to be a lot there. But so that may not be a realistic reading ahead. I apologize. Sure. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, and I think Jethro, not only is he fascinating in his own right and really a hero of the faith that we should give more attention to, but he's also helpful to us because obviously Melchizedek is very important. But the parallels between the events of Jethro and the events of Melchizedek are too powerful to ignore. God does not create patterns like that by accident. So when we see Melchizedek mirrored in somebody like Jethro, we can look to Jethro to help us understand more about Melchizedek. Yes. Yeah, just like Melchizedek was. Not all pre... The whole point... I mean, not the whole point. But a significant point of Melchizedek is he is outside. He has no father. He has no mother. He has no genealogy. To be a priest like him is not something that is dependent on your blood, who you're bo what family you're born into, what your lineage is. It's really something that God, it call, he calls anyone to be a priest. A, a priest is not self-appointed. A priest is called by God. So Melchizedek, Jethro, priests of God, not self-appointed, God calls them. Doesn't matter who, what their lineage is. So I got five minutes, and so I want to just stay on the last page, but go to the top of the notes. This is something a little more mysterious. We'll just veer back into the mystery factor. But it's worth mentioning that Melchizedek actually does have a uh, kind of an evil counterpart. And we find him in the book of Joshua in chapter 10. And his name is Adonizedek or Adonizedek. And he is what? A king of Jerusalem. So do his, does his name and Melchizedek's name sound similar? Yeah, it is, because where Melchizedek means king of righteousness, Adonizedek means lord of righteousness. And it's the same, the, you know, the third most common word for God in the Old Testament is Adonai. This is Adonai affixed, affixed to the Hebrew word for righteousness. But it is a lesser title 
than king of righteousness. And I'll just, since I'm almost out of time, I'll just kind of cut to the chase and say that this Adonazadek uh, is actually, I think, and a good case can be made for, that he is a, um, a foreshadowing of Antichrist and Satan. So he is a false king. He is a king of false righteousness. And all the things that he does are not good. So, and he leads the resistance to the coming of God's people into their rest. As they go into the land, he leads the resistance against Joshua and the people. So, and ultimately what happens to him is he and, believe it or not, four kings. You know, again, it's this alliance of kings similar to what we saw in with Melchizedek. Uh, but Adonazedek and the other kings are cornered in a cave and rocks are tumbled down on top of the entrance of the cave to trap them there until the time that Joshua sees fit to bring them out and execute them. This is all in Joshua chapter 10. And uh, it just reminds me of uh, Revelation. I think it's in chapter 5. I forgot to put the, the verse on there. But it says in Revelation, And the kings of the earth, the kings, and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every freedman hid themselves in the dens and the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And for the great day of his wrath is to come and who shall be able to stand? So where Adonazedek, the Antichrist, is leading the other kings to hide in the caves covered by rocks, where Joshua will, at his time, bring them out and dispense with them, so too will Antichrist lead the kings of the world to hide in the mountains and in the caves until, and cry out for the rocks to cover them until Yeshua, Jesus, will come out and dispense with them. So I just, Melchizedek's, you know, I mean, there's a lot more to say about Adonazedek, but it's interesting that, that Melchizedek has a uh, sort of an evil doppelganger. Uh, so again, there's only two kings of Jerusalem in the Bible until we get to David. So you have Melchizedek and Adonazedek. That's not by accident. We should... Saul was not a king of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was still held by the Canaanites, the Jebusites in particular, until the seventh year of David's reign, he conquers the city and makes it Israel, but he did not rule out of Jerusalem. I think it's Gibeon. So, uh, believe me, we will have a lot more to say about that when we talk about David. So, oh, we, <laughs> any questions? I hope this hasn't been, you know, I know Melchizedek is a mysterious figure. I hope this has actually brought a little clarity to him and not, you know, just made it more confusing.
Hoyt, you had something to say? Who knows? But that's very possible. But I think what's really, what another thing that's interesting about that is, look what it says. So you in chapter 20, the last part of verse 20, chapter 14, verse 20, the last part says, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give. <laughs> so, you know, you, you have a very strong uh, contrast being given where Melchizedek has asked for nothing, and Abraham has given freely to him, but the very next thing that happens is the king of Sodom saying, give. So he's being, he's being contrasted against Melchizedek as well, and it's not a very nice contrast, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's almost like Satan. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> so, okay, any other questions? I hope this was fruitful tonight, so, well, good, I'm glad. Okay, then I'm going to close with prayer. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you that we can look to see what you have done in the past and know that it is a model and a promise for what you have done and will yet do for us. We thank you for Melchizedek, for Jethro, and for all the priests who have served you so faithfully. I pray that we too will be priests and serve you faithfully. We ask all of this in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.